I must confess, I've been thinking of uh, peanut butter and chocolate, like those old Reese's commercials. Peanut butter and chocolate are both fine and good on their own. And sometimes that's just what's needed. But they can be extra tasty when combined. And in the same way, or at least kind of, if you'll run with me on this uh, metaphor here, workforce development and credentials can do good work on their own, but they take on a richer flavor when combined, a sweeter flavor. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast, number 302, we're going to talk about workforce development and credentialing. Both have been the focus of recent episodes. We talked about credentialing and the potential for credentials in the current moment in episode 295, and we looked at workforce development in the here and now in episode 297. And we've also had the opportunity to talk recently with four individuals for the podcast who deal with credentialing and or workforce development. And so we want to draw out some key points and takeaways from those conversations. We didn't set out to treat these episodes as a series, but they've naturally coalesced around some common topics and issues. And so we want to make sure to get as much benefit as possible from the different perspectives on and experiences with workforce development and credentialing. And one of the first takeaways we'd like to highlight is the simple fact that workforce development and credentialing often fit together. Credentials often speak to career or job readiness. And they serve as a clear indicator that a candidate has the necessary skills or knowledge to perform certain roles. Right. And workforce development offerings often lead to a credential that becomes that indicator that the individual has the necessary skills or knowledge for needed jobs. Now that said, workforce development and credentials don't always go together. Sometimes to address a worker shortage, a credential really isn't needed. You know, maybe would-be workers just need to complete a short course or training, and that's sufficient. In North Carolina, for example, where leading learning is based, our governor, Roy Cooper, has created the Finish Line Grants Program, and it's a workforce development initiative, but it doesn't have to do with credentials, at least not directly. The grants help community college students who face unforeseen financial emergencies like medical bills or car repairs and childcare costs to stay in school. And it's maybe easier to think of examples the other way. That is, many credentials exist that don't tie to a workforce development initiative, Jeff, your master's degree in comparative literature and mine definitely weren't workforce development related. Definitely not, especially given that neither of us put those degrees to use in the actual workforce. And my diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace certificate, which came from the University of South Florida, didn't help me get a job. And it wasn't tied to a clear uh, advancement in, in my role either. But very often, a credential is tied to workforce development and vice versa. And uh, I must confess, I've been thinking of uh, peanut butter and chocolate, like those old Reese's commercials. Mm. Peanut butter and chocolate are both fine and good on their own. And sometimes that's just what's needed. But they can be extra tasty when combined. And in the same way, or at least kind of, if you'll run with me on this uh, metaphor here, workforce development and credentials can do good work on their own, but they take on a 
richer flavor when combined, a sweeter flavor. Yeah, I'm trying to picture workforce development and credentials bumping into each other on the street, <laughs> mix, mixing with each other. So, and you know, and even in cases where workforce development and credentials aren't tied, they could be. And arguably should be. And I think a big part of the scrutiny that higher ed is under, for example, is because there isn't a tighter connection between that college credential, that degree, and employment. Um, and so there's a lot of tension there now that we're spending a, a whole bunch of money to, to put people through these four-year, often five-year or, or more <laughs> educational experiences, a whole lot of money and coming out, having a lot of debt and not necessarily getting, still getting employment. I mean, it's still advantageous. So the stats show it to, to go to college, but still there's a lot of skepticism now about is it really the, the right path and is it really getting the return? Is it going to continue to get the return? So there's that mismatch between the credential and what the workforce seems to need. Employers are complaining that they're not getting you know, students out of college who are actually prepared to do the, the work that they need to do. And that's going to need to be reconciled. And I think, as you said, that's a, that's a big tension in higher education right now. Well, and your comments there put me in mind of a report that came out recently from the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. We've mentioned that center before. We've been uh, lucky enough to have uh, Anthony Carnavali on uh, as an interviewee in the past. But recently they put out a report um, called Ranking 4,500 Colleges by ROI, and it's the 2022 version. And so they use data from the college scorecard to rank colleges and universities by return on investment. And really what they looked at was 10 years after leaving a, a higher education institute, what were those people making compared to folks who only had a high school degree as their highest level of, of educational attainment? And, you know, on average, people do make more with a, a college education. And in fact, it was on average 60% of college students across institutions earn more than a high school graduate after 10 years. But that tells you that that's not, it's not 100%. It's no. definitely not a, and it's, a and it's skewed, as, as I'm sure you're going to tell us. Well, yeah, there's definitely some, you know, the, the, the center there at Georgetown University is trying to dig into why. And, you know, part of what they think explains at least some of the disparities are gender and race and ethnicity and a, a lot of higher ed because it is so expensive in terms of actual dollars and in terms of time investment as well. It really can be more difficult for certain groups to actually take advantage of that. Yeah. And, you know, higher ed, obviously not our uh, real focus here, but still very telling. Um, people do expect to get a return off of a credential, whether it's a degree or any other uh, kind of credential, employers expect it to, to have some value if it's going to be that sort of signal out in the workplace that the credentials so often are. And so, you know, if you are a learning business and, and you're offering, you know, training and you're offering some form of credential to, to go along with whatever you're doing, or you're offering a, a certification that uh, helps to cap off training that uh, people may be getting someplace else, you do need to be paying attention to uh, what kind of return the recipients of that credential are experiencing and what kind of return the employers, uh, if it is a workplace-oriented credential, what kind of return are those employers getting in the end off of hiring the people that have, that have got your credential. 
Well, and so the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce, you know, is doing its research and really digging into this. There's another center for education and workforce that I'll mention. This is from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation. And really, they have a portfolio of workforce projects because they really want to help make sure that Americans have the right skills for the jobs of today and tomorrow, as they put it, and then that the economy has the skilled workers that it needs in order to grow. Yeah, I mean, the chamber has been a real force in this, as, as you would expect, I think, a, a, a U.S. Chamber of Commerce to be because it does relate uh, so directly to what their members need and want. It's an area that um, Josh Goldman, who leads up our consulting, uh, he's been very involved with the chamber and the work that they're doing. And I know they have a number of different initiatives in that sort of portfolio of workforce project that they're putting out there. Yeah, one of them is the Talent Pipeline Management Initiative. And I think that's the one that perhaps Josh is most involved in. And it's described as an employer-led strategy to build real career pathways aligned to dynamic business needs. And so you can hear in just that little synopsis, it's this tight alignment with employers. It's trying to really be attuned to what are the actual real life, real world career pathways. And then it's also acknowledging that business needs are changing, that they are dynamic. And so this initiative is about trying to address that and and provide a framework that can be used for it. And at this point, more than 3,000 employers in the U.S. and and Canada have implemented the the strategy. And I had an exchange with Josh about TPM, as it's known for short, um, the Talent Pipeline Management Framework. And, you know, he really pointed to the fact that it really does engage with employers very directly and so that they can really... Um, look for what is the problem that they want to collaborate on to solve for the industry. Sometimes it's just they need more talent, sort of plain and and simple, and they just got to get that through the pipeline. And an example of that is the nursing shortages that we're facing in this country. But sometimes it's the employer needs, you know, different skills, you know, so this is where then credentials can really help there because they can have a lot of value in, in closing that skills gap quickly. And then the other things, a few of the other things that Josh pointed out to me is that, you know, this TPM really just, it provides a structure and a process. And that can be so valuable when you're really trying to partner with employers to have something that helps you identify, quantify, qualify the challenge that the employer is facing. And, um, and then too, you know, it creates then this system that can then help get the workforce that is needed for employers out there. So in general, we'll include some links in the show notes about that TPM framework and that initiative, because I do think it is a concrete real world example of how you can really tightly align with employers to understand what is it that they need workers to be able to do and where are there the training or skills gaps. Yeah, and it really is. A, it's an approach and it's a framework for um, education providers, training providers, learning businesses to know about. And there, and there are you know, a good number of supporting materials that go with it that organizations can leverage. I mean, Josh was you know, selected to attend the, the Talent Pipeline Management Academy. So that's the academy that really trains business, workforce, and economic development leaders on TPM, on that approach 
as a strategy to create the, those pathways for students and, and workers to create those talent pipelines. And it's something that we've you know begun recommending in a number of situations and consulting for organizations to engage with that process and to engage with employers, which we keep talking about again and again, and you know, convening groups of employers to really talk about what the needs are, to, to, to talk with each other, because even though there can be, you know, competitive elements. When you're talking about a field or an industry, there are usually common needs that need to be met. And that's kind of what workforce development is about. And as an education provider, as a training provider, if you're in a position to help facilitate those conversations and to do it in something like the context of the TPM, the Talent Pipeline Management Framework, you're going to be seen as playing an incredibly high value role, and you will be playing an incredibly high value role. And this, again, sort of comes back to the whole matching up of you know credentialing and, and workforce development. If you're able to bring your credentials into that conversation and whatever support you can provide around those credentials, again, very, very high value stuff. Yeah. And so we wanted to revisit our recent episodes on workforce development and credentialing to make sure that listeners see the connection between the two, you know, this chocolate and, and peanut butter complementarity. We're grateful to Bench Prep for sponsoring the Leading Learning Podcast. Bench Prep is an award-winning learning platform purpose-built to help learners feel confident and prepared to take difficult entrance, certification, and licensing tests by delivering an intuitive, efficient, and engaging study experience. Bench Prep helps you accelerate test prep revenue growth by offering the tools you need to create market-ready products and data to improve your content and understand learner behavior. Many of the world's leading associations, credentialing bodies, test providers, and training companies trust Bench Prep to power their online study programs, including ACT, the Association of American Medical Colleges, CFA Institute, CompTIA, GMAC, McGraw-Hill Education, AccessLex, and more. More than 8 million learners have used Bench Prep to attain academic and professional success. To discover more, visit leadinglearning.com slash benchprep. We recently spoke with four individuals for the podcast who deal with credentialing and or workforce development. And so we want to draw out some key points and takeaways from those conversations. For episode 296, Jeff, you talked with Claire Marsh. She's Senior Vice President of Training and Development at the American Bankers Association. And Claire and ABA are thinking about developing the banking workforce of today and tomorrow. And then for episode 298, you talked to Jim Fong, and he's the Chief Research Officer at the University Professional and Continuing Education Association. And I know that unbundling education is top of mind for him, and his group does a tremendous amount of research on trends and developments in higher ed. Right. And, and Salisa, you spoke with Vonton Quinlevin in episode 299. She's a true workforce development expert, currently serving as CEO of Futuro Health, which is heavily involved in credentialing and, and committed to growing a network of credentialed allied healthcare workers. And then in episode 301, you talked to Jenna Cohen, Workforce Product Manager at ACT, which offers a National Career Readiness Certificate as one of its portfolio of workforce development initiatives. And so when we looked back at those four conversations collectively, five things bubbled up for us. First, 
do your research and use data. Second, make learning achievable. Third, partnering is powerful. Fourth, the pandemic will have lasting impact on lifelong learning. And fifth and finally, do things differently. So let's talk about each one of those. Uh, first, that you know, do your research and use data. Of course, data comes up again and again when it comes to just understanding your market as a learning business, uh, as a credentialing provider. It definitely came up in my conversation with Jim. Jim is, I mean, really all about research. That's the huge part of what he does at Upsia. They do a lot of, of partnering with uh, organizations, both employers and uh, you know, vendor type organizations that are serving the, the same sort of market uh, Upsia members are, are ultimately serving. I mean, Upsia members are concerned with the continuing education, the professional development of adult lifelong learners. So, you know, they really have to understand what's going on out there, what the needs are out there. Jim does a lot of work to do things like, you know, create personas. He's done some very interesting work in these studies that uh, we're referencing around personas of, of different types of, of lifelong learners right now and how they might fit into this kind of bigger picture of what's happening in society what workforce development needs might be out there, what credentialing and associated training and education needs might be out there, and then what the implications are. And, you know, he's concerned primarily with academic continuing education. So, you know, continuing education, professional development, executive education type units at colleges and universities. But really, you know, everything he's covering, if, if you are in the business of educating and supporting adult lifelong learners, the types of data that, um, that, that, that Jim is coming up with are extremely important. And if you are in that business, you should obviously be engaged in, in efforts to collect your own data to understand very clearly, obviously, what your learners need. There's always a lot of conversation. We do a lot of work around learner needs assessments, kind of market assessments, but also employer needs and just the, the general evolving needs of the profession and the industry that you're serving. And that, that has to be an ongoing research initiative. It has to be an ongoing effort to gather and, and, uh, and analyze data, not just the one shot thing. We talk about this a lot where you, know, you send out the, the, the survey once every five years or something like that. That's not going to get you what you need in, in today's environment. Uh, research and the continual use of data should be an ongoing uh, thing for any uh, serious learning business these days. Absolutely. And that definitely came up in my conversation with Jenna Cohen of ACT. I mean, they are a research organization in, in many ways. And she similarly, you know, is all about following the data and listening to the market. And then, of course, using that market research, using that data to then drive decision making. And for her, you know, she really talked about her own personal role as a problem solver, but really ACT's role, you know, as an organization, as a problem solver, really trying to look out there. And again, we know them because of that college entrance exam. That's, I think, where most people know ACT, but they have this huge set of programs and initiatives really focused on that workforce development and workforce readiness as well. They have work ready communities, they have their work keys assessments, they have that national career readiness certificate. And so for them, it really is kind of looking somewhat broadly, especially for like the work keys, you know, what are the sort of basic skills that really do make 
someone ready to enter the workforce and then assessing that. And then of course, assuming that the assessment comes out, you know, well, that, that indicates that the learner has actually mastered those, those competencies, those skills, that knowledge, then that they can earn that certificate. And so I think it's very much in keeping with what you were saying about, about your conversation with Jim. Jenna just reinforces all of that. Again, know your market, really dig into problem solving with the employer so that you understand their issues and then offer a solution. Yeah, and that came through, you know, clearly in the conversation with Claire Marsh as well. I mean, she really emphasized that know your audience component. And I, and I think she and, and the American Bankers Association really are exemplars of what we're talking about in terms of being that organization that's, that's collecting data, that's doing research, that's in contact with employers in the marketplace, that's in, in contact with all of the different sort of segments in their case, members that are in, in different employment roles in, in banks and, and really understanding their situation and what they can provide in terms of both training and credentials to support that. And then the other point she made was, you know, really taking measured risk because you know, a lot of times you can, you can send out the survey, you can have the conversation and get an idea of what's going on out there. But until you can put something out there for people to respond to, you really don't know. That's often one of the best ways to get the data that, that you really need to make the right decisions. And then I have to think of my conversation with Von Tone Quinlevin as well. And again, you know, just being able to see the market and then see what's needed. I mean, with Futuro Health, it really is this huge shortage of allied healthcare workers. And so when you see that need and when you see the scale of that need, then that begins to tell you some things about what would a potential solution look like given the scale of the issue, I know that it pushed Vaughn towards let's partner, right? Like no single organization is probably going to be able to do this. And how can we do it as quickly and efficiently as possible? Because, you know, things tend to get bogged down. So I think when you see the market and understand those needs, it begins to tell you something about what your solution should look like. So that's the first takeaway, do your research and use data. The second is make learning achievable. Right. And this is one that, again, certainly came up with Jim Fong, and I think re relates back to the situation that higher education in, in particular finds itself in right now, where the commitment to a full degree, particularly if you're an adult learner, a non-traditional, though those are increasingly the, the, the more, <laughs> they're becoming the traditional learners. But if, if you're already a working adult, you know, you've got different responsibilities in life, it can feel daunting to pursue a degree or even to pursue like a, a full-blown certification or, or larger credential of some sort. So how do you break it apart? How do you get it into chunks of activity, of achievement that feel manageable for that adult lifelong learner? So unbundling what you have, making it possible to, to stack smaller credentials, smaller achievements into larger achievements, and just in general, making it feel more possible for that adult lifelong learner to to engage with you. That reminds me, Jenna Cohen used the metaphor of, how, you know, how do you eat an elephant? It's, mm -hmm. it's one bite at a time. And so this, this idea of unbundling so that then it does become these bite-sized manageable pieces of, of learning and then a credential to go with that. And then you can take your next bite and, and move on and eventually eat the elephant. One of the things that stood out to me, though, in my conversation with Vaughn was just that 
you also have to have supports to go along with the learning. I mean, unbundling is part of it because it lowers the the barrier in terms of the time required, the time investment required, and then also often the money investment that goes with that. But adult lifelong learners tend not to exist sort of, you know, on their own. They tend to have other responsibilities, jobs, family, life. And so I know that a big part of what Futura Health is thinking about is, you know, what are the supports that are needed? And this is a big focus of workforce development in general, right? That you sort of really treat the learner as that whole human. And so, yes, they need to be able to understand the concepts that are being taught in a course, for example, but they also need to have their, you know, childcare costs covered, or they need to have a way to go show up for that class if it's a place-based class. And you know, you you mentioned the those finish line grants that Governor Cooper here in North Carolina has put in place. That's all speaking to this idea mm-hmm. of supports and what do lifelong learners, adult lifelong learners, need in addition to access to the content to really be able to learn. Right. And so that's the second takeaway, this make learning achievable. So really think about what you can do to make the path and the steps along the path as easy and clear as possible. The third takeaway we got from these interviews is that partnering is powerful. Right. And, you know, this was something that, again, well, it came it came across with everybody, as you're saying, but in my conversation with Claire, you know, one of the things I was struck by there is the potential for partnering that, that goes beyond just being able to determine, you know, what's needed right now. Obviously, if you're in good conversation with em- employers and employees and potential employees, then you know what's needed right now and you can develop the right offerings, whether that's the training and education or the credentials or, or both to go with that. But a lot of workforce development is, is really future focused. You're looking at how the whole field, the whole industry is evolving. And, and Claire talked about really seeding the, the, the future workforce. So, you know, figuring out what those issues in the future are going to be, what talent needs to look like in the future, which you only figure out through close partnerships, you know, with the people who are, you know, doing the employment, the people who are on the front lines doing the work. But, you know, the, the, she's concerned not just with people who are in the job market and who are employed right now. Obviously, that is a concern. But she's also looking out into the future and thinking about things that are happening, like the fact that, you know, so many of us are now working remotely. And that's, you know, we're not tied to a specific location, for example. So how does that change how you do things and meet needs in in the future? And again, it's through the partnerships and the continuing dialogue that she and ABA are able to to figure that out. And for Vaughn, the power of partnership really becomes apparent when you think about what problems can you not solve on your own? Basically, what problems do you really need a partner for? Because those are going to be the ones then where there's a strong, compelling reason for the partnership in the first place. And so that's a key ingredient to a strong partnership. I think another key ingredient that Vaughn pointed to is just that partners need to bring what they do best to the table. I mean, it's this idea of of merging strength with strength, right? You know, one organization is going to be really good at marketing. Another one's going to be really good at content development, whatever it might be. But when you really understand the strengths that each partner is bringing to the table, then you know how to organize the partnership to get as much as possible, as much value as possible out of it. 
And then, you know, for Jenna, they work very closely with employers at ACT. And, you know, it's, she described it as peeling the onion of the problem statement. So, you know, uh, an employer might say, you know, we don't have enough workers or we don't have enough skilled workers, but you really have to engage in conversation. You really have to be a good listener, ask good questions, hear what the employer is saying to really begin to understand, okay, well, what will it take then to address that problem of not enough workers or workers without the right skills or however you can really boil that problem statement down? And, you know, and obviously we're emphasizing employers a lot as partners here. And they're certainly not the only option. They shouldn't be your only choice of partners. I mean, if you're in academia, doing you know more academic-focused continuing education, looking at what the trade and professional associations and the worlds you're trying to serve are doing and figuring out ways to partner with them. Conversely, if you're a trade or professional association, forming those partnerships with academia that can you know, often help you take your, your content, your brand, and, and other elements to, to new levels. Looking you know, at regional partners in, in the areas that you're trying to serve, often nonprofit or governmental organizations to partner with. But all that said, employers obviously are extremely important in this because most of the people who are going to be listening to us are serving a profession, a, an industry, a trade. So it does ultimately track to employment and you've really got to have that partnership with employers. With that in mind, I'll you know, once again mention the U.S. Chamber of Commerce initiative around the, the, the talent pipeline and, and the, the resources that we've already referenced there. Certainly something for all listeners to take a look at and we'll, and we'll make sure that there are links to uh, those resources in the show notes. Now, you know, so far we've talked about data and research, so important. We've talked about that in, in many instances and in many situations before, making learning achievable, partnering. Those are perennial. Those, I think, are always been there around really serving the, the workforce well, both employers and employees. But we've had some significant change recently that's kind of disrupted how we look at everything. And that includes uh, this whole topic around workforce development and and credentialing. So our fourth big takeaway is that the pandemic is going to have a lasting impact on lifelong learning. Definitely. And I think it's a little bit like the, you know, peeling the onion of the the problem statement I, I was just alluding to from the conversation with Jenna. I mean, it's, it's understanding what is the lasting impact in your field, in your profession, with the learners that you work with. I know that Jenna pointed to the need for ongoing convenience and and flexibility, that she really thinks that's something that's going to stick around, that, you know, so much became possible to do remote, you know, to keep up with remote workers, as you also mentioned, Jeff, and just that's the kind of thing that's likely to carry forward even when it's not technically you know needed anymore for reasons of of safety for example but that people have gotten used to that and so you know keeping convenience and flexibility and remote options in mind that's the kind of thing that's likely to stick around and probably likely to stick around pretty much across the board yeah yeah definitely and, you know I think another thing that's going to reverberate we mentioned in the, the conversation with Jim Fong some of the turmoil that traditional higher education seems to be in at this point particularly around you know degree programs and, and this was happening before COVID came along but but COVID has accelerated a lot of institutions were really impacted by the fact that uh, students can no longer come to campus we saw declines in enrollments we saw people who were enrolled not continuing in- enrollment anymore. And there's a, a question out there, you know, are folks going to come back? And to the extent that they do, what does that look like? Is it 
Are we seeing a fading away of sort of traditional degree approaches and accelerating more towards alternative credentials of, of various types? If that happens, and it do seem to be you know, headed in that direction in many ways, that's going to change the face of, of higher education, but it also changes that whole credentialing and lifelong learning marketplace. And it, and it opens it up a lot as to sort of who can play what role in terms of providing credentials to the current and the emerging workforce. And that's going to be a big long-term, potentially a big long-term impact. And when I think about the pandemic, I I just have to note that Futuro Health launched a couple of months before the pandemic hit in the U.S. And so unlike some of these other organizations that we're looking at, you know, they perhaps had the benefit, perhaps had the disadvantage of, you know, kind of being born during the pandemic. And so they had immediate huge challenge and huge shifts. Health went to telehealth pretty much overnight. That sort of changed much of what was needed by the folks that they're out there to serve these allied healthcare workers and that they're trying to train. And I think it also speaks to perhaps the ongoing value of partnerships. I mean, part of what Futuro Health did was, okay, we have to sort of pivot given where we're headed with COVID. And so they sort of immediately found good partners. And so they were able then to train over 4,000 healthcare workers in 20 states within two and a half weeks. That's amazing. To (laughs) prepare for that first COVID surge. And so, you know, I think that's just remarkable, right? This idea of how much something like the pandemic can shift an organization and then what the opportunities are. And and in their case, I think it was a a strong argument and opportunity for really deep, profound partnership. And I think that that need for partnership, you know, will continue because when you really think about the big problems, you know, like a huge labor shortage in any particular field, you know, odds are there's not going to be a single organization that's going to have all the resources or all the abilities needed to actually address that. And so partnering just makes complete sense in that context. Yeah, absolutely. And as you noted, Futuro, for better or worse, you know, they were launching when all of this hit. So in some ways, they didn't have a past that they had to sort of now adjust to this new model. But of course, that wasn't true for so many organizations. I think probably for most of our listeners, that was not true. You were probably already doing tons of face-to-face stuff, big annual meetings, those sorts of things. Suddenly, everything had to go online. I can remember talking to Stephen Shragas at at One Day U, linked to that uh, episode as well. But I mean, that whole business model was face-to-face. It was place-based. And like, I mean, within a matter of weeks, they had to flip everything to virtual. And, you know, Claire Marsh, the same point at Bankers Association, they, like so many organizations, had to virtualize everything when COVID hit. But then she also made the point that I think many leaders of learning businesses, learning business professionals are are feeling right now is that some of what they ended up doing online was actually more impactful. It, you know, it actually created opportunities for impact that they hadn't even realized were there before. And as she put it, they're not going to let that go. I mean, they're going to they're going to continue pursuing that, getting those benefits out of distributed learning programs and of hybrid models. They're pursuing some hybrid models in what they're doing. This was a pivot point when it came to digital education. You know, it it, it took it completely mainstream to the extent that it hadn't been already. And a lot of organizations are now really, we've talked about the great rebalancing of portfolios at this point, and that's that's not going to go away. I think that's a permanent part of the, the landscape going forward. So 
that actually points uh, well to our the, the fifth point that we we took out of these conversations that we've had, and that's that we need to do things differently. Yes, and Jenna Cohen at ACT made the point that you have to be careful not to be solving the problems of the past. So you really have to keep up to date on the market and the data. So this goes right back to that first point we made around, you know, knowing the market and using data. But she also pointed to something that was interesting, which is that you can't always provide a baked solution, as she called it. You know, sometimes you just have to respond. You don't have time to analyze it thoroughly. You just have to kind of take what you do know and run with it. And I think, again, the pandemic was an example of that for so many organizations where you just had to act. You just had to figure out something that worked. It may not have been, you know, the best solution. A lot of those, I think, initial virtual conferences weren't necessarily the most captivating or or well-prepared, but they served an important need in that moment. And so there's a little bit of a, a balancing act here between doing your research and knowing the market, but also being prepared to act and not being too caught up in, okay, this is problem I know, this is the problem that they need and kind of clinging to it when maybe the problems change. Because I think for a lot of organizations, the pandemic is an example of that changing what their learners needed, again, kind of overnight. Yeah, I think I think that jibes well with uh, what Claire Marsh emphasized about measured risk. Oftentimes, taking a measured risk means realizing that there's a, a problem or an opportunity there that needs to be addressed, that you can't just sit still on it. You might have your hand forced a little bit. But, you know, in the context of the the pandemic pandemic initially hitting taking your your annual meeting fully online which a year earlier would have sounded like an <laughs> absolutely crazy idea suddenly became a measured risk because it was probably riskier not to do that if you wanted to you know remain engaged with your members and, and your customers you know and then Jim Fong of course made the point that academia higher education really probably doesn't need to be wed to the 120 credit degree which has sort of been the traditional path that again you know we need to to look at unbundling and not being sort of lulled into complacency by the the way we've always done it basically and of course that applies to anybody who's offering you know a, a hefty certification that you know requires you know years of of experience and education and everything else you may need to back up and say, okay, how do, how do we break that down and do things a little bit differently here so that we're really, again, able to, to serve our learners where they are. And so that's the last of the five takeaways that we wanted to highlight from these conversations. They are takeaways that we think are of value to almost all learning businesses. And, you know, they read fairly generically. So it's all about digging in to really understand how these statements apply to your learning business and what they might suggest about what you do differently, what you continue to do the way you're doing, and just to see challenges and opportunities before those challenges overtake you and before those opportunities get snapped up by someone else. So the five takeaways are first, do your research and use data. Second, make learning achievable. Third, partnering is powerful. And fourth, the pandemic will have lasting impact on lifelong learning. And fifth and finally, do things differently. 
That's it for our deeper look at workforce development and credentialing and lessons and takeaways from some of our recent conversations. For full show notes and other resources, please visit leadinglearning.com slash episode 302. In the show notes, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast, and we hope you will subscribe if you haven't yet. Those subscription numbers give us some visibility into the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts, especially if you enjoy the show. Jeff and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a review. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 302, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.